Hey guys, Maria Menounos here. Before your favorite AfterBuzz TV after show begins, I'm so excited to tell you that my new cookbook is out. It's called The Every Girl's Guide to Cooking. It's the quickest, fastest, easiest, most amazing recipes for kitchen newbies and chefs alike. Please check out MariaMenounos.com for more info. Buzz you later. You're tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after show entertainment. <laughs> TV, the destination for TV superfans, producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows, interviewing celebrities and showrunners, and bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Yellow. The music's so powerful, you got to let it play there for a little while. Hello, and welcome once again to the Profit After Show for AfterBuzz TV. I'm Chris Howard, and uh, you can reach out to me. So if you want to communicate, you want to... Uh, actually, I'm not going to read it right now. I'm going to read it later, because I can do so many things at once. But um, you can reach out to me on Twitter at, at ChrisHowardLive. If you have any feedback, any feedback about the shows, the breakdowns that I'm doing, if you want to add thoughts, uh, I'm always open for discussion, love to love to hear what you have to say about it uh you can, so chris howard live you, you can also reach me uh at legendarylivingdaily.com that's where i have tips motivation uh, business building things as well and legendarylivingtv.com so let's rock and roll let's get into this thing uh, we got two episodes here of the prophet and we're starting with episode six i i really really like this episode uh, we were looking at or uh, marcus I'm, i just threw me <laughs> threw my, threw myself into your own team i, I threw myself <laughs> onto your team i guess so Looking at this business, uh, Grafton Furniture. And Grafton Furniture was a generational business. So you had a man that came in 1964, his name's Esteban Grafton, and he launched this furniture business. It was, it's a custom furniture business. And they've done quite well. Uh, and what's neat about this is we get to see the generational aspect of businesses. I've had a lot of friends myself who had generational businesses or family businesses that were passed down. And uh, I know that there, there's inherent with that type of business, there's this whole set of challenges that come uh, simply because you're in business with the people that are family members as well. And so obviously every type of relationship that we have is going to have the, the specific challenges that come with it. But when people are playing more than one role, for example, if they're your boss and your brother, uh, or your boss and your father or, or something like that, you can imagine that there's uh, different types of conflicts that can emerge. And so we got to see that. And what I really liked about this is, and what I really am enjoying more and more in these uh, episodes of The Prophet, is that they throw the stats out. You know, Marcus will uh, let you know what the stats are in relationship to generational wealth. Uh, he's also quick to break down uh, when you look at how much, what the margin should be in a business or the cost of goods, show, uh, goods sold should be in a specific industry. So uh, really appreciating it from that, that standpoint because there really are serious business lessons that you can get and that's part of the fun of taking a look at a show like this. So Grafton, Grafton Furniture, um, typically generational wealth Will be uh, will be blown by the second generation. So 60% of generational uh, wealth that comes from uh, business wealth from one generation to the next will be uh, will fail. An additional uh, on the third generation it jumps up to 90%. So that's wild, and I mean it's pretty clear why that would be. Right? It's kind of like with uh, Warren Buffett. And one of the things was, one of the things he said with his kids, much to their dismay, was that I think uh, his philosophy on passing wealth on, he says, I think you should give your children enough so they can do anything, but not enough so they can do nothing. And oftentimes, uh, by passing down wealth, that can be like giving our kids a lifetime supply of food stamps, and it can rob them of their ambition. And so the same values that it took to build a business 
are not necessarily the values of the children that are going to run the business and their children that are going to run the business. And the fire, the drive of the entrepreneur just may not carry through. And there's other problems that can happen, too, from a communication perspective and uh, and all the family drama that can be brought into the business. And on, on the flip side of the coin, there can be magic to it, too. Uh, so if it's if it's done correctly, and this is why I really appreciated this. Um, mm, so uh, let's take a look. Let's take a look. Uh, 1964, Esteban Grafton came in. He uh, has his son, Steve, runs the business currently, and he's 50-50 partners in the business with his wife. So the business was passed from Esteban, and you got to see all three generations inside this episode, which was, which was cool as well. So the grandfather was there, the father, and the father's son, who will take over the business. Uh, so uh, Steve's there with his wife, Mary, and they're running the business, but there's clearly problems. There's problems in terms of the quality of the furniture that's going out. And there's also problems in 19, or not 19, boy, I'm dating myself, in 2009 when the recession hit. Uh, the business took a major hit from a revenue perspective. Uh, so they weren't able to pay their mortgage on their house and all sorts of things came up. And you know, if you've been in business long enough or if you're, uh, you know, you're going into business, starting a business, things happen. Economic, economic times can change. Uh, you know, you have a bubble that bursts in real estate or in the, the, the stock market and uh, things happen. You have to be able to react to that. I love uh, Warren Buffett says the tides come in and the tides go out. When the tides go out, you get to be you get to see who's been swimming naked. And in this episode, it was clear that Grafton Furniture was swimming naked. Right. So they were able to uh, provide the services that they provided, which was top end, high quality furniture that was custom made, custom designed. So they even had a showroom and Marcus uh, uh, pointed that out when he walked in. He says, boy, this is a showroom, but you can't buy anything because it was just examples of the types of things they could do and everything was made custom. So they had nothing that was going uh, direct to consumer or anything like that. It was primarily designers that were buying this furniture. Well, when times were good, when the, when the tides come in, and they say the raising tide uh, rises, raises all boats, rising tide raises all boats. So when the tides came in, they were able to profit and everything went well, but when the tide went out, when the recession hit, one of the first places that people were cutting was in custom designed furniture uh, and they weren't able to they weren't able to manage that and so they hit a very tough uh, time they were close to being out of business Marcus uh, he, he he comes into the business and he sees automatically what the problems are that's once again I, I've grown to be a real fan of the way he does it the way he shows up his ability to look at the business and see things that other people wouldn't see Right? And we talked about that last week. We said that's uh, what, what I call situational awareness. He has a different type of awareness in that situation that allows certain things to pop up that wouldn't pop up for uh, you know anybody on the street corner, the guy serving coffee on the street corner. Right? So he's able to see, and through the lens of how he looks at businesses as well. And so he looks for the people, he looks for the process, and he looks for the product. Well. In this case, the people issue was, in, in my opinion, the primary issue. And then there was also another issue with, with the, uh, where the revenue was coming from. So Marcus saw right away that they needed to open up more revenue streams uh, that would make up for the unpredictable nature of the, des the designers purchasing custom, uh, custom furniture, but also... Uh, because the margins were not that great. So the margins were, uh, they had 50% margins on the business, uh, gross margin. And Marcus uh, had pointed out that in, in the furniture design business, they should be at a 70% gross margin, which is pretty, pretty huge um, in, in my book. Yeah. So that was the target margin that he was uh, shooting for. And so they wanted to find a way to be able to reach out direct to consumer because then they could have mass market appeal beyond uh, just the uh, niche of servicing designers in custom ways. So a couple of things to, to patch up here, some holes to patch up. 
in terms of the relationships, let's look at those first. So you've got, you know, and even if you think of your own family, you know, have you ever had a problem with your father or with your, you know, your children, if you have children? Uh, and you can, you can imagine how that could enter into uh, people's consciousness. I'm sure there's expectations as well that if, you know, the business is being passed down from one generation to the next, there could be an expectation that the next generation jumps in with, uh, you know, enthusiasm, wild enthusiasm and anticipation to take this thing over. And it may not exist within them. That may just not be what's in their heart. Uh, but War, I'll go back to Warren Buffett for a second. When he, uh, with Berkshire Hathaway, which is his holding company, and it's, it's valued higher than any other stock on the stock market that trades today. Um, so a single share of Berkshire Hathaway might trade for $160,000, where you look at Coca-Cola and it trades for $46 a share, you know, and you, you say, boy, is there a disparity? And the answer is yes. Uh, so Berkshire Hathaway is the most highly valued stock on the, on the stock market today. Um, but the reason why it's so valued is because of the value that Buffett has provided uh, in terms of his ability to look into things as Marcus is doing and see things that other people can't see. He's able to see value and he knows what value to buy. Uh, and that's how wealth is created. It's either created through creating value through entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial ventures or by having the preternatural ability. I stole that word from Anne Rice. Preternatural means otherworldly, right? From the vampire books, Lestat. <laughs> so the, having the preternatural ability to look and find value where other people couldn't find it, to find the, the, the diamond amongst the 30 cubic zirconians, right? the, to find the needle in the haystack. And uh, that's Warren's ability. For him, his children went the polar opposite of what Buffett was. And they responded because they, they talked about his focus and he was he's one of the most focused people you could ever imagine. And uh, that's what he attributes his wealth to is his ability to channel that focus. But the children saw that as being a detriment. They didn't see him out doing, you know, just having fun or, and he's a fun, loving guy, but they saw that as a detriment. And here's where you get the problem that can come up with generational wealth. If the children ab react to the value system of the parents, and go, you know what, I don't want to be like that. And they go another way, uh, which Warren's children did. You know, he had his son who became a musician, uh, the, you know, his daughter who went her own path, but neither went in a path that was uh, the way Warren went, and right down to the grandchildren. So the grandchildren now are uh, bohemian off the chart. Really, really, a couple of uh, Nicole and uh, a couple of nice girls who are really uh, sweet, but they're very bohemian artist types. So you look at the ab reaction that uh, one generation can have to the previous generation and you get why uh, there might be challenges with that. And so the next generation has to be just as uh, juiced up to go in there and attack that business with the same fire and drive and that entrepreneurial zeal if, they're, if they wanna build it as the originator. And that's rarely gonna be the case. But um, with like Warren's son, he ended up coming back. He now sits on the board of Berkshire Hathaway. And this is also part of our journey in life, right? Where people can go out on their own and then come back and, you know, you know what, dad, maybe you had something to that. Uh, so he's come back around from a business perspective and uh, he finds himself in the business. Of course, he's still an artist, uh, which is cool. You know, everybody to each their own. But you can imagine in a generational business that uh, there could be conflicts in terms of the expectations that it be taken on. And, you know, it, you, you can also imagine from a parental perspective, if, if you want to pass on the business to your children, that you want to do that so that they can continue the, to build the fortune or so that they can you know, find their way and have a path. But your children, if they're not that into it, you can imagine that conflict, right? So in this particular uh, instance, it's funny, Esteban is the grandfather, Steve is the father, and Stephen is the son. So they're all basically named Steve. And Esteban came over to this country to pursue the American dream, 1964, set up the uh, furniture company, and things took off. 
right? So it started going really well. They, you know, they pour their blood, their sweat, their tears into the business. A couple of challenges that they had inside this business uh, were always, and Marcus is real quick to point this out, in the, uh, in the process. The place is too cramped. They're using antiquated e equipment. Uh, you've got roles, and this, uh, these, both episodes six and seven, and oftentimes in these episodes, but in these two episodes in particular, I noticed that one of the big problems they're having in these businesses is a lack of clear definitions of roles. So when you don't know who's in charge, uh, then, uh, then we've got a recipe for a mess. And so this is a uh, this is part of the formula that Marcus will roll in with. He'll take a look at the process, take a look at the factory, see is it clean? Is it uh, you know is the machinery uh, up to date? Does it do the job that it needs to do? Could it operate more efficiently? Is there even a process in place? And more often than not, we're finding in these episodes that he finds that there's no real process. And I'll, uh, you know, I'm going to put a caveat on that. There's no real process through his eyes. I'm, there's, there, there has to be a process, otherwise nothing would get done. But it's just not an uh, efficient, effective, or lean process. And one of the problems that they were having in this particular business was that the product was getting out without uh, any type of quality control. So people that would pay, for example, for a, a chair, uh, they might pay $1,000. And Marcus pointed this out to them. They looked at the chair and he said, how much is this chair going to sell for, a custom chair like this? And they said $1,000. And he said, but a custom chair with these nicks in the side of it. And they said, well, that's pretty much worthless. And he pointed out in the showroom itself, the, the, you know, this was supposed to be the examples of the quality of work that people would get that you know everything was flawed or you know, there was a uh, on the sofa one of the ends of the sofa was crooked was put on crooked uh, there was a chair and he literally took a knife and cut the uh, cut the material on the seat cushion open to show that the foam that was inside was cracked and broken so and he i think he called it a half-ass chair or something like that uh, but you see that on the quality control side something was falling through the cracks and so he asked who's in charge of quality control now, Stephen, the grandson, says, well, that should be me. And Marcus's response is, should be, right? So, so there was no clear delineation of that. And in addition to that, one of the big problems was the father, Steve, of Stephen, not giving power, not empowering Stephen to really make any types of decisions within the business. So Stephen would, you know, say, "Hey, we can't be shipping out product that's in this type of shape," and they, uh, Steve, the father, as well as there was another guy, Lewis, I think it was, that was running the, uh, you know, he's a, a bit of a manager there. Said, you know, when we have clients that want rush shipments, we have to meet those shipments. So to do that, they were cutting corners. And so Marcus comes in, he makes them an offer as he always does. Uh, in this case, let's see. Uh, in this case, how much did he give him? He came in. It's, uh, it's got. It'll, it'll come to me. He gave him a bunch of money, right, <laughs> to, to come in and be a part of this business. But what he wanted, as always, is he wanted controlling interest of the entity, and what he wanted in addition to that was he wanted to have total say in terms of what Stephen's future was, the young one which means that if he wanted to fire him, he could fire him. And it's and fire him, you know, putting the fire underneath him. There's a little bit of a metaphor there because I think what Marcus's goal really was to do was to establish the responsibility that needed to be there in that in that third generation. You know, this if the statistics are that 90% of them fail, uh, he wanted to make sure that there was going to be a clear plan of transition that would take it to that third generation. So what Marcus was able to uh, get going within this uh, particular episode was he was able to establish the roles and establish who's responsible for what. It seems like such a simple thing, but makes all the difference in the world. 
You know, if you got uh, butting heads in terms of who's responsible, then you wind up having challenges. So he gives Stephen these little yellow stickers and Stephen became quality control. Nothing gets out unless Stephen puts a yellow sticker on it. No matter, and, and Marcus left the business, came back to the business to see how they were doing. And he found that the father, Steve, was still trumping some of Stephen's decisions on that front. So Marcus had to put Steve in his place. There was a, a need to, uh, I won't even say micromanage, but there was a need to control what was happening and not a, there wasn't a generous nature of, uh, in terms of sharing the authority uh, inside and allowing Stephen to step up and become what he needed to become if the wealth was to be saved. So uh, very, uh, very cool episode to see that. And I think more, more than anything, what was cool was to see it from the perspective of uh, the generational wealth. That was really neat to hear about the statistics. Margins on the, uh, I'll throw this in here as well. The margins on the furniture was once again on the custom furniture, about 50%. One of the reasons why the margins were at 50% was because all of this custom design that was going into it. And hence the reason why Marcus wanted to open up another line that would be direct to uh, consumer, So, you know, you could buy a chair if you wanted to, or you could buy some of this fur furniture that was mass produced rather than simply being custom made. And you can see how we can widen the market share in that way. Uh, and so he set out a task and the task was to build four chairs. Uh, or four different types of sets of chairs that could be warehouse, that could be shipped direct to consumer. And these chairs were to be in the $500 price range, uh, but it wasn't going to be a custom job now. So they're branching out into being able to attack the marketplace in a different way, hit it from a different angle. And I see, I see the intelligence in that. There's clear brilliance in that because once again, they were swimming naked, right? So this is the... Uh, this is how they can take charge of their risk and how they can minimize their risk so they can weather those times. Because that's really what this is about, is if you can only make money in times where the tide's high, how, you know, but you're, you're going to fight to stay in business when the tide's low, that's a problem. So he needed to fix that, minimizing the risk of the business, which made it a wiser investment on his part. And uh, in the end, they ended up doing really well. Uh, Marcus takes them to uh, direct buy in the end, which is a direct to consumer retail uh, house. And he helps them to make the connection with them, which is, you know, here's where, you know, here's where you get to take the product to market. Here's where we get to see the increases because we can, we can improve the process. We can improve the relationships inside the organization, which we get to see in a lot of these episodes, but it's when the marketing occurs that we get to see that the dollars go up. And so he goes to direct buy. They have a really good conversation. I mean, it can't help that they're on camera. Um, direct buy really liked the chairs. They thought that they were, uh, they, they, they were cool. They liked the designs. They didn't get a deal right there on the spot, but they, it was going in a good direction. And, uh, but we got to remember that a deal is not a deal until the money's in the bank. Uh, but it, it looked like they were going in a nice direction with that. Overall, uh, they had a, a great experience with Marcus. I think he really saved them and he stepped in and really helped in a powerful way. He brought them back to their place and he, uh, and I think this was really the high point of the episode was they, he showed them the outside of their building, which he had painted and designed. They did it uh, in a graffiti style that displayed the American dream coming to the dream of Esteban, the grandfather, when he first came to the States and you know, he had that fire and that drive and he was gonna make that dream come true. And it had all three generations displayed on this mural on the wall at just the entire outside of the building. Pretty cool, right? So that was uh, really, really neat to see. And that was episode six. Now we're gonna go into episode seven and we, we're gonna look at pre uh, precision graphics or Precise Graphics, I apologize. So Precise Graphics is a company that uh, builds signage for any type, like if you went to an, into a supermarket or if you went into a, a sporting goods store, you might see, or Mar Marcus takes them out to do the design for one of his companies called Camping World. 
and they have an opportunity to go in there. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But so they're, they're going to do all the display signage and that type of stuff. And I think Marcus really likes this company right from the beginning. Uh, the, he, he comes in, looks at the typical things. He's going to look at the people. He's going to look at the process. He's going to look at the product. And he's also going to look at the books, right? So we can't forget that. That's part of the, uh, that's part of the underlying machine, right? Uh, and he's very, very, very good at that. So uh, companies in Philadelphia, you got two brothers, once again, a family business. You got Keith and Dean running the business. And Dean's got about 21 years, give or take a few months, uh, of experience in the design business. So he does all the signage design, that type of stuff. However, the big conflict in this episode is the conflict of the people, of the brothers. Uh, and it's not a, uh, you know, it's not a verbal conflict. It's not a uh, fisticuffs. It's a silent conflict because both of them have a high need to avoid conflict. They're brothers and therefore nothing gets spoken about. Nothing gets talked about. Nothing gets delineated. And then here's the other problem. And I've said this before in other episodes. Uh, the partnership's 50-50. And uh, I'm glad that Marcus uh, kind of uh, certified that idea because I've been saying this uh, for a while, so it's good to get uh, second party approval. Uh, but that 50-50 partnerships, when you look at those, that's a, that's a problem waiting to happen. Why? Because uh, Marcus said, because then you've got 50-50 leaders. And for me, it's because nobody's in charge. So if you've got a 50-50 partnership, who gets to make the final decision? Uh, if you just got a pro uh, you've got a problem waiting to happen. And actually, that was one of the first things that Marcus noticed when he walked in. Yeah, because Keith had been the one who had funded the business. So once again, two brothers, Keith, Dean. Keith had funded the business. He had put in about $160,000 of his own money. Right? And, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you're going out to launch your own business, your job is to fund the business. Well, here you've got a partnership. And so we see one way that money can come in. They go into partnership. One of them is providing the capital. One of them is providing the skills and the skill sets to create this, uh, this signage for, for uh, different places. And that's one of the problems. It wasn't actually different places. It ends up that 70% of their revenue is flowing, about 65% of their revenue is flowing from one uh, major uh, company. So what that means is, is that the risk goes through the roof, right? If they've got one client that's providing 70% of everything that flows to them, what happens if that one client goes? So you've always got to look at the balance of risk and, and we go, well, the risk is off the chart in this, in this situation. So something has to be done about that. Uh, you know, not in a freakish way, but something has to be done fairly quickly so that uh, there is not that risk factor. Because once again, this is going to this is an example of swimming naked where you can do real well when the tides are high. But if the tide was to go out or in other words, if they were to lose that one customer, then everything falls apart. And who wants to be at risk in their business like that? Uh, you know, so you want to, this is why people say, oh, be diversified. Well, uh, Warren Buffett says, put, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket wisely. So <laughs> no 10 figure, no billion dollar net worth has ever, ever been made from a sheer passive investment in the stock market and the diversification like that. Most great fortunes are made through a concentration of energy and purpose in a singular direction. Think Apple, think Microsoft, think IBM, think uh, you know any, any of these companies. Um, they make it from a concentration and most great fortunes are preserved through diversification. So the, the preservation and the diversification becomes the, uh, the safety net in that case. Well, these guys uh, were operating without a net. They're flying without a net. Uh, they they were doing pretty well. They were this year. They had three three and a half million dollars in sales, not bad. Uh, but it's still a drop in terms of previous years. So something something's going on here. And Marcus wanted to get to the the, the bottom of it. So as he comes in, he takes a look at the books, which is a good place to start. 
Uh, it's the reality check. And he's, he's really good at being able to fall in love with the numbers. I was just doing a coaching call. I do uh, coaching calls uh, within my business, and it was a business coaching call. And um, one of the things that I said is if you, uh, if you don't fall in love with the numbers, you got a problem if you're in business. Right, because if you hate the numbers, good luck in terms of making your business uh, work. Hating the numbers is is a is the kiss of death to a business. You have to fall in love with the numbers and change. You know, I had to change my beliefs about numbers because if you believe that you're no good with numbers, which I, you know, I barely made it through math in high school, uh, and so I believed that I wasn't good with them. But if you believe that you're no good with numbers and you hate looking at it, uh, then you you're just begging for financial problems, right? So instead. Change the belief to you, I'm as sharp as attack with numbers and you fall in love with the process of looking at the numbers and that helps you to work through that blind spot in your business game if that's if that's what you're looking to do. So uh, Marcus sits down to look at the numbers and what he finds is that sure enough they had done three and a half million dollars the previous year but that was down from the two years leading up to it. So something was happening that was causing the revenue to be down. Um, Marcus comes in, he studies the numbers a little bit, and he says, what do you, actually first, I think before he did that, he went in to talk to the employees about what they thought was the problem. And the employees gave him, and he, he does this often, good, uh, good strategy, it's a 360 degree peer fear, feedback, feedback, <laughs> could be for some of them, right? So he goes in and he says, what do you think is the problem? One woman says, everything. Everything's the problem. There's no process. There's no this. There's no that. Okay, he goes to somebody else. What do you think is the problem? Uh, and he says, the problem is, is that we have just one company that's our, our primary client. And if we lose them, we're in trouble. And this is something that became, that was already evident and had already been made evident. Uh, and you see the risk in that. You know, one conversation that goes wrong. Uh, or and it could be something that's even out of you know has nothing to do with you has something to do with an offer that was made to that company by a competitor or something outside of your awareness where all of a sudden that company is no longer in your court right so the, the risk factor is so high um, it's like you know being on the road and getting sideswiped by another driver it wasn't necessarily your fault but it was something that occurred and you don't want to be uh, at risk of falling over uh, at any moment because you had you left such a gaping hole in the in the underlying safety of your business model uh, so but billionaires and, and people that have built the biggest fortunes on the face of the earth they, a lot of people think that they're into risk they're, they're risk takers and it's not that they're risk takers they like to minimize the risk Donald Trump was once asked what's you know isn't it risky being in the casino business and he said, well, he said, it's a lot riskier playing in a casino than it is owning the casino, right? So it's not about getting out of risk. It's about minimizing the risk that you have. So we got a business that's in a precarious place right here. Um, even if they had the best relationship in the world, it's a precarious place to be in. Uh, so the feedback is basically along those lines uh, with everybody. He asks some of the employees who's in charge of the business, who runs the business, and nobody can say. There's always this pregnant pause, right? And, he, and here we get back to the problem of the 50-50 uh, ownership and unclear, undefined roles within that organization. Uh, as we look at the books, uh, this is a, this is the I thought this was a little bit of gamesmanship on Marcus's part. Uh, you know, in the end, it ended up being a good deal for these guys, what he was offering them. But uh, it was interesting how he presented it. So, and in negotiation, uh, one of the things that really comes up as a major factor in any type of negotiation is what are the expectations of the other side uh, that you might be negotiating with? What are their, what are their expectations from moment to moment? Uh, there was a play that was written. I forget what the uh, not, the name will come to me, right? But the play was all written about. I think it was it might have been called the deal or something like that. And a guy, a, a gentleman, shows up at another man's house, and the man, the guy whose house it is, is selling all the furniture that's up in his attic. So this man walks up and he's walking around the attic, and the entire play takes place in the attic. Um, and so the, you know, they're, they're negotiating over the furniture, but the man who came in to buy is not 
really negotiating. He's just saying, oh, what a lovely couch. He said, that's a, you know, that's a beautiful couch. He's like, he looks at his, I really, really love that. And then he, and the guy says, oh yes, it's a, it's amazing. You know, you do, that's a great couch. It's so comfortable. It's, uh, you know, you will love that. Your wife will love it. And then the guy who's buying says, but you know, it's too bad that it's nicked on the leg right there. Yeah, that, uh, that's too bad. And then he takes a measuring tape out and measures the couch. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this because I don't remember exactly, but he measures the couch. There's a point to this, right? He measures the couch and he says, boy, if that were just two feet less long, it would actually fit in through the front door and I wouldn't have to hire a company to, to bring it up in, in, in a different way. And so he just goes through it. He says, but beautiful couch. And the whole thing is all about what's happening to the expectations of the seller in this situation, in this set of circumstances. The guy just keeps going through and saying, oh, wow, that's a lovely chair. Oh, it's too bad that it's, it's uh, you know, it's got these uh, scratches on the foot because that could be really a, a nice piece. And the expectations in the seller's mind to just keep going down and down and down and down. If you if you know what the name of this play is, please uh, tweet me at Chris Howard Live. You can tweet me there or write it right under the, the video here if you're watching on YouTube. Remember also to get the podcast. You can download the podcast and get these pushed to you, right? So right there. Uh, so I, I, you know, give me a little bit of feedback, and I'm looking for the name of that play. So if you can think uh, what that is, let me know. Uh, so. The expectations go down. And this is what was really interesting to me about how Marcus presented his offer to, uh, to Keith and to Dean. He looks at the assets and the liabilities, and they actually broke this down. He looked at the assets, the liabilities, and the earnings of the company. So we're talking about the net profit at the end of the day, what were the earnings? And oftentimes you'll hear in businesses that people might value the business at a four-time multiple or something like that. Marcus valued this particular, and that, what, that, what that means is that they're gonna look at the earnings over four, a period of four years and say, that's the value of the business. Now, that's one way to evaluate the value of a business. It may have no bearing whatsoever on reality, depending on the type of business it was. If you did that with Facebook, um, you would have said Facebook was worthless before they brought in ads. Right. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of other things and a lot other a lot of other factors to take into uh, account when when you're valuing a business. And from an investor standpoint, uh, he was really he was probably I, I can't even say he was lowballing it because, you know, th this is a a comprehensive business that requires a lot of work. It's got a big team. It's a big moving structure and infrastructure, um, which, you know, if somebody else is going to come in and buy that business, they get to carry that on. And, you know, that could either be looked at as a an asset or a liability. It could also be looked at as a burden for the, you know, depending upon who's looking at it, right? So he says, so he's got, if we got the assets, we got the liabilities, we've got earnings at a three-time multiple, and then we'll subtract other liabilities. He said they had about $180,000 of liabilities on their books, or they were in the red by about $180,000. I don't know what uh, why liabilities came in twice, honestly. Uh, but he said, this business, he says, what, what do you think the business is worth first? Keith throws out the number 2.5 million. So I don't know, about 2.5. Marcus then says, when you look at the assets, the liabilities, and you evaluate it on a three-time multiple, he says, the the value of this business right now is $270,000. Now, think about this for a second. You've got one big number in your mind. You think it's two and a half million and he throws out 270,000. What happens to your expectations in that moment? <laughs> they plummeted down, right? So I was waiting with bated breath, waiting to hear what Marcus would say next because I didn't uh, really I, I just thought he was going to come out and uh, make the uh, lowest offer that he could. It's not, you know, it's not in his character. He's a he's a pretty fair guy, and he also likes to he likes to empower people. So he's he's got a heart. He's a businessman, and he's not afraid to make the decisions. But he's got a heart. Uh, so he says he poses this question to him. He said, "Let me ask you a question. If, so, if somebody came in here today." 
and they were to give you, you know, the business value, I say is 270,000. Now, actually, I'm gonna pause for a second. Push the pause button. Because here's one thing on Keith's side, the business owner's side that I think uh, warrants pointing out. He, Marcus said, this is worth 270,000. Then he throws it back to Keith and he says, what do you think? Keith stammers for a minute. And then he says, well, if that's what you say it is, I don't have anything to refute those numbers. So I guess that's what it is. And I have to say, just from personal experience in business, um, it's, a, it's in a time like that, that it could be in your best interest to step up for yourself, especially if your, uh, if the business is your life, it's your, your blood is your soul. It's, a, you know, it's an expression of your soul's purpose that you've been building for a long time. That's exactly how somebody could come in and end up buying a piece by baffling you with bullshit. And it's not necessarily, sorry, Marcus, I don't mean it was bullshit, but when it's numbers that are above your head as a business owner and you think that somebody's got the solution. Fortunately, we're dealing with somebody who's got a character, we've, and, you know, he's a solid character, as well as it's televised and stuff. You know, you know, well, that could go either way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Marcus, is, he's, not, he's not looking to screw them over. He's looking for business partners that are going to go the distance. But that is a good place where you can get in a lot of trouble if you just accept the wisdom and the baffling with numbers and the confounding. And that's one of the reasons also why you must fall in love with the numbers so that you can understand what's happening. I say that because of failures that I've had as much as uh, successes. I've learned more from the failures than the successes. Uh, but uh, so he, uh, anyway, after Keith, you know, kind of stumbles over that and says, I'll just take your valuation which I don't think uh, was, was a good move, but we've all made bad moves. Then Marcus throws the question back at him and he says, let me ask you a question. If somebody came in and they gave you guys, this is Keith and Dean, gave you guys $270,000, which is the worth of your business, Marcus keeps saying. Uh, he said, if somebody gave you that and they paid you back the 160,000 you put in, so all you got, you know, you could go out, you could be, you could be surf all the time. You could become surf bums, do nothing, uh, live off of that. I mean, that would be pretty hard to live off of, but, uh, you know, you can go out and, and do whatever you want and you can give the business up. Would you do it? Then they cut to commercial <laughs> as you do, right? Uh, comes back. He poses the question one more time for dramatic effect and, and to tie the story together and both brothers stammer here they can't give a straight answer they, they say you know what i don't think so and marcus jumps on that opportunity he says that's that's exactly why i want to be in business with you he said i wanted to know that i had partners that wanted to really be in this business and uh fair enough you know so testing their desire testing their will he did that to the young stephen in the previous episode too testing his desire and his will and looking to light the fire underneath him, which when given the responsibility, uh, we got to see, does he step up or does he not? Uh, because if he doesn't, that's the end of the generational wealth. In this case, if these guys don't want to be in this business and they're halfway out the door, um, then you don't have active partners that are there and willing to participate. So, uh, you know, they both said that they would want to stay in. So the offer then that Marcus, uh, and this is where the, the, the gamesmanship comes in and the presentation comes in. I, it's, it's almost unfair to call it gamesmanship because, um, you know, you could have the best offer in the world, but if the person doesn't realize it in their own mind, then, uh, you know, all bets are off. And uh, we go back to that, that play I was talking about. The owner of all the furniture could have a, a, a huge price, an inflated price that they, he would have in his head as they started. But as things were pointed out, the realities of the situation were pointed out, the expectations went down. Uh, it's called the price. I figured it out. If you put it down before me, uh, you win. What do you win? You win my love and admiration. 
Um, so the price is the name of that flight. And so the, the price continued to go down and expectation uh, is going to determine whether there's actually a deal that gets to be made or not. Right. In this, Marcus set up the expectations by taking them through the numbers. And then he says, I'm going to make you an offer. It's for two hundred and seventy thousand for 30 percent of the business. So what I here's the brilliance in this uh, in the presentation of this. This is where Marcus redeemed himself because at first I'm going, man, he's just going to take him for you know take him for a bit of a ride here. It's like where's he going to take this? I was expecting him to ask for uh, 51% or uh, controlling interest in this one, um, but. He always now in, in season three, and he wasn't doing this in season one, to my knowledge, uh, and maybe midway through season two he started, but he's always saying, I'm 100% in control. I'm the decision maker. I get to make all final decisions. He, in my opinion, what likely happened, and this is just a guess, but he had to clarify that. I said that uh, over and over again, because if he was buying in for 30% of the company, the 70% shareholder would say, you know, screw you. This is, if, they, if they got to a point, where there was no clear delineation of who's in charge. Hence why we see that it's so critical. And Marcus is saying he's in charge because he knows that if they don't follow the ideas that he's setting out, the company is not like, likely to get off there, uh, you know, to get fire underneath it, right? Why? Because people stick to the ways that they've done things, even if they're not working. And we, we've, been, we've heard that that's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. But it's really hard for some of these business owners to break the patterns that are already broken patterns. They're not working. They're not leading to the kind of results that they want. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on the show. And so he has to take that control position in these cases. I can tell you, if somebody came in and said they got to be 100% in charge of my business, I don't think I could say yes to that. Uh, so, and the reason is you never know where that person's gonna go with it. Uh, luckily, they've got somebody that they can trust here. I don't think Marcus could make the show work unless he put that caveat in there. Uh, but so he gets to be in charge and he's gonna take a third of the business, which splits up the 50-50 problem. Uh, and I think the big one of the big learnings that you and I can take from this is this whole issue of the 50-50 problem. It's just it, it does not work to not have somebody in charge. I mean, it's not that it can't, um, but they, what do they say? Even a, uh, a blind squirrel gets a nut every now and then, right? So it's not that it can't, but it's more often than not going to cause problems. So somebody's got to be in charge. Marcus gets the 30 percent, 33 and a half percent. So that's a third of the business. Each of the brothers retain 33 and a half percent of the business, and he gets to be 100 percent in charge. Right. So now it's time for cleanup, and we only got a few minutes left. So I got to clean up and wrap up. So what Marcus is able to do here is he's able to get the factory working in a leaner way, update uh, equipment once again. So money oftentimes will go into the production, the equipment. Uh, if there's faster or more efficient ways to do things, he, you know, Marcus is going to look at that. He's going to look at the process. We've got the people problems almost resolved. One of the things that he still needs to uh, make sure is that each of the brothers in this case take on the roles and responsibilities that he wants. And what he does is he splits up and he has to delineate them and give them each specific roles. So he puts Keith in charge. Now, if you're Dean, the other brother, you can imagine that might be, that might bruise the ego a little bit, right? So he puts Keith in charge and he says, Dean, you're in charge of design, but Dean's the guy that had 21 years of design experience. And now he needs to see if these guys can champion these roles and work well in these roles and, and uh, perform in these roles and do the job. So the, he gives them one more caveat. He says, he writes the check for them. And he says, you can cash that check, but you got to prove that you can do a job first. And so he brings them into Camping World, which is one of his businesses. And he's going to let them do the signage inside. And in the end, they go through, they go through a rough phase and they go through, you know, in any type of uh, team, you have a, 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 a 
forming stage where the team comes together and now we've made changes in the team. So the team is gonna form and then you get a storming phase where there's gonna be challenges to the leadership, there's going to be, uh, you know, people are gonna be tussling for leadership. That happens in any type of group dynamic where there's a storming phase, which is the equivalent of adolescence when you're a kid, and then moving up through that to adulthood in the form, and that's a norming and performing stage of a team. And so they get into the norming and performing. This is where you get to really see the results that occur. And it, it's the equivalent of maturity uh, within an individual, but it's the same thing as maturity in a business. So they end up doing a, a stellar job in camping world, really pull that off. And Marcus gives them another business to do, which is, uh, I believe it's Automatch. And uh, they do a, a kick-ass job there as well. Dean in charge of the design. Uh, they had a couple of brotherly problems along the way leading out to the end, but in the end, they were really able to pull it off and they, they did some stellar work. Uh, so kudos to them, kudos to Marcus, and a couple of great episodes that we can take some incredible lessons out of. And you know, even if these aren't things that you find, maybe you're not in business, maybe somebody you loves in business, having an awareness of these things can better prepare you for either dealing with them or launching your own business or launching out on a dream. More and more people are doing that every single day uh, and, and you can do it too. Uh, and so when we learn and glean the lessons from these things, they become not just something that we watch on television, they become something that we take on. And when you can take those on, you can change your whole world. When you, there's a lot of lessons. I mean, they're coming at indiscriminate times, right? So you, but there's a lot of soaking in that you can do, but it's also these types of lessons that can set you free. And there's more opportunity than ever before in the world with uh, online businesses that are launching like that for, for no real capital uh, that needs to be invested in it. You know, pay somebody 300 bucks, they throw up a website and you're, you can be in business. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I hope that uh, some of the lessons that you gleaned from the profit from Marcus from this show uh, can help you to become even more successful than you've ever dreamed of. Right? So we're going to say good night, farewell, uh, Vita say goodbye. Uh, we'll be here next week, the same bat time, same bat channel. And uh, once again, remember uh, to watch the video, put some comments in there. I like to respond to things. Uh, go to iTunes, download it, rate us five stars. Make sure you give us five stars on iTunes download it and get the uh, podcast and uh, we'll see you next week for the profit oh reach out to me chris howard at chris howard live i've always got something more to say i'm chris howard at chris howard live you can reach me at legendarylivingdaily.com uh, for tips motivation daily stuff that will go out to you it's, uh, it's really neat by email and then legendarylivingtv.com which is my youtube channel rock and roll see you next week from executive producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later! The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.